thank you to everyone for coming. Um, first things first, everyone do write in the chat box or message Megan separately if for any reason you can't hear someone or you're having problems with accessing the meeting. Her, um, Megan's email address is now on the, the message that I sent as well. So if you have any problems, do just copy that and get in contact with her. You'll also see in that message that I just shared on the group, there's a link to the, the report itself. So you can all go and read that in your own time after the event has, has finished. Um, so all attendees will be on mute and we can't see any of you, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to speak to you. <laughs> so you should be able to see at the bottom of your page um, something that looks a bit like this. So we have a chat button, which please do put in any concerns that you're having with the but also please just general comments, compliments, criticisms, concerns, all pop them in there. Um, and then raise your hand if, if we've not got to you or there's a bigger issue that you want to draw attention to. And then please, throughout the event, do ask questions. And you, there should be an option for you to upvote questions. So if someone's already asked the question that you were going to ask, please do upvote it so that I can ask the most popular questions right at the end. And I've just launched two polls, one which asks whether we should expand our definition of security and one which asks whether the index has covered the things that we should be covering. So please do vote in them as well. Um, with all the comments and questions, you can ask, ask the questions anonymously, um, but do bear in mind that everything will be on the record, including Q&A. In that vein, if there's anything that you want to tweet about or share on social media, then please just use the hashtag sustainable security and we can follow the comments that you're making on there as well. So we'd like to thank Paul Dunpukum and the Lipman Miller Band mm -hmm. for making the report and the index possible. The index, without stealing too much of Alistair's thunder, as he's going to discuss it in more detail later, is based on the argument that measures of security are too narrow and do not adequ adequately address the true drivers of conflict. This report is designed to spark a debate about how we measure security and the things that we should take account of. So to start that debate, we have an excellent panel of experts who will just be discussing different drivers of sustainable security and exploring how states can work towards a truly secure world. So we will start with Alistair Mackay from the Oxford Research Group, who will go into the sustainable security concept. Then we will have Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace to discuss governance, equality, and her latest book, A Savage Order. Then we will have Delina Godger from the Open Society Foundation to discuss the use of force and the Sahel. Then we will have Dr. Oliver Scanlan, an ORG fellow and an academic based in Bangladesh to discuss the environmental governance pillar. And then finally, we will have Liam Walpole from the Oxford Research Group discussing what all this means for UK foreign policy. We have given all the speakers quite a difficult task of doing all of that in eight minutes. So please do ask questions for clarification and areas that you would like the speakers to discuss further in the Q&A. 
Um, and I guess if everyone's ready, we'll start with you, Alistair. Okay, thank you, Abby. Um, so to begin this, I was really going to start with providing an overview of um, Cyber Security, as all the titles of this event suggest. What we have created here is a sustainable security index. Um, but for some of the audience, the idea of sustainable security might be uh, new lingo. To others, it might be something you're very familiar with. But I think it's a good um, gambit to start with by giving an idea of the actual ideas uh, that have fed into this um, process and how we sort of got to where we are with the index. Um, Sustainable security is an idea that's been with Oxford Research Group for a, quite a while. Um, a lot of it is based on the writing of Paul Rogers, and it's also was for a while um, a research program. But the basic crutch of sustainable security is that um, in order to build a more secure and sort of sustainable world in terms of its security policies, it is important to address the causes and drivers of conflict rather than just simply react to the symptoms of them. Um, that is not a particularly controversial statement. It's sort of something held by a lot of people. Um, but in order to do that, what the sustainable security concept basically advocates is that you really need to rethink security uh, in order to do this. And that means really taking a far more holistic approach to understanding security. And this means going far beyond the idea of military metrics um, and these sort of measures such as aircraft carriers and really looking at far more, perhaps less obvious drivers in security such as things like climate, uh, inequality um, and many other things. And I think in the era of COVID, certainly this kind of idea has certainly become a lot more pertinent perhaps than it has been. Um, the ideas um, that sort of fed into sustainable security really started to take shape in a 2006 report. And this report um, essentially prioritised four drivers of insecurity, which at the time, and I still think the case kind of holds for these being very important um, things to address for international community and states. Um, four drivers that essentially need to be prioritised um, for a very unstable system, or else a very unstable system is going to emerge by the middle of the 20th century. Um, and the, this report was written by Paul Rogers, Chris Abbott, and John Sloboda, who are all, some of uh, currently affiliates of OIG, others have sort of moved on. Um, but the four drivers, which were seen as interconnected drivers, and ones that kind of need to be addressed very much kind of as parallel issues, not sort of separate from one another, and not as part of a series, were climate change, particularly the social impacts of climate change and the impact it has on um, things like the developing world, areas such as the developing world, um, competition over resources, which was very much closely linked to climate, particularly the relationship between firstly fossil fuels as a driver of climate change, but particularly also the idea of climate as a kind of limiter of um, competition over resources. Um, these, um, these drivers actually became merged into one as thinking went on. Um, but this also fed into another driver, which um, was prioritised, which is the idea of marginalisation. Uh, and this was seen as a priority at the time because it was not necessarily an obvious security issue, but what a lot of the writing was looking at was this idea that when you have societies that are very much unequal and that are subject to sort of government that does not actually prioritise um, all the interests of civilians, what it essentially creates in simplistic terms is this idea of civil unrest, um, this idea of dissent. And in very severe cases, a lot of this um, can, in many cases, sort of spoil over into things like sort of things like you know episodes of unrest but also in very severe cases civil war um a lot of this was also tied to the fourth driver which was basically this idea of an over-reliance of hard power 
um, solutions to deal with things like unrest, um, both at home and abroad. Um, and this was really sort of one of the main areas of criticism that Paul Rogers was writing about, which is this idea that essentially when you have these things such as sort of outbreaks of sort of violence, where we have these um, things like sort of insurgent groups, you can sort of deal with them temporarily by sort of using military issues. But in the long term, the problem has been really that it doesn't necessarily um, provide effective remedial action. Instead, what you essentially get is these kind of ideas of cycles of violence. And this is something that's been kind of sort of um, core focus of a lot of Oxford research, uh, Oxford research groups work over the past several years, particularly the idea of remote warfare being a sort of an, a way of dealing with that. So in terms of those ideas, those are sort of the key principles that we've adapted into this index. Um, in some ways, it is a tricky task to take all of these kind of things because it's a very sort of complicated approach that looks at these kind of interconnectedness and almost this kind of this idea of a butterfly effect of security causes. One thing's like climate impacts on another and it kind of all spills into these kind of cycles of insecurity. Um, but we kept the sort of the core essence of it. And with the index, what we wanted to do was basically in some ways simplify the concept so it could be kind of a bit more digestible for a data um, set, but also kind of not dilute it too much so that it didn't kind of, you know, water out the whole message of it. Um, but the variables that we came up with were uh, equality and governance, which is largely linked to this idea of addressing things like marginalization, but also this idea of um, how states essentially treat their citizens, particularly wherever they are um, accommodating things like minorities. Um, we also um, addressed things like the use of force, which is very much linked to the first driver because it addresses things like when episodes of dissent emerge within societies, how um, receptive are states to dealing with these things through, you know, participatory measures like democratic accountability rather than utilising of hard force. Um, and the other measure we also looked at was this idea of states being, um, the extent to which states use kind of hard security measures to deal with both external issues as well. Um, and these issues were looked at both as internal and kind of external drivers, but ultimately the case we were making were that things like good governance was very much a thing that cannot really be looked at as a sort of issue, mainly because the ramifications of them tend to be very much international issues these days, particularly things like dissent and civil war um, very much become uncivil in both conduct and also in their location. Things both often overspill their boundaries very quickly. Um, and then finally, we also looked at this concept of environmental governance, which is also linked to things like climate change. But it's also more of a broader understanding of um, how sort of effective humans are in terms of um, how society, effective societies are in terms of things like addressing things like biodiversity, things like that. And I think as Ollie will probably explore, these environmental issues are very much closely interconnected. And what we tried to capture with the index was a much more sort of holistic approach to these kind of issues. Um, as sort of communicated with this index, um, this is really the first kind of attempt we've had at doing something like this. Um, and it's also the first attempt really to kind of get this idea of almost, you can call it a sort of a human security or an integrated approach or whatever, kind of as a kind of a, almost a data format. Um, we have been quite cautious about what we can show with a project like this. I think we're saying that, you know, this is a, a prototype and that, you know, it's, it's sort of essentially what we're really hoping to do is inspire debate on this. And I think one thing that will be very interesting will be um, the discussions that we come from the panelists, particularly, you know, what the index might be missing, whether, you know, the sort of the focus is perhaps too much on the West, whether there are sort of things we are missing in the index. Um, 
So I think on that note, it's probably a good um, opportunity to sort of open it up to the next, to the floor and sort of go into a bit more of a deep dive on these uh, these drivers. Thank you very much, Alistair. That's a great overview of the concept and it opens it well to the next one. So Rachel, do you want to go next? Sure. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on the panel. It's a pleasure, although I wish I was actually in England with you. Um, so I think the, the index is, um, in terms of highlighting different forms of fragility, is, is quite important. You only need to look uh, at us here in the United States to understand that governance, particularly inequality of governance and security sector inequalities, uh, are drivers of fragility. Um, and that fragility itself is far more distributed than people thought. Um, there's an assumption that poor, weak states are the main driver of fragility and that that poor, poverty and weakness causes the state to be overrun by rebel groups or violent groups. And that's been the working assumption for many of our security interventions for some time. Um, not only do, do recent events here in the United States belie that case, um, but so does most research at this point. So do weak states drive violence? No. Um, myself and my research assistant mapped out state weakness. We looked at uh, World Bank drivers of, of weakness. We looked at whether states could deliver services, various different measures of weakness. And then we measured that against states that were repressing peaceful minorities and, and states where uh, peaceful journalists were being murdered. Not only was there not a correlation with weakness, but the greatest number of both of those kinds of violence was in the strongest state box. And that struck us as quite interesting. It wasn't the absolute strongest states, it was the, the middle of the strongest states. And that jibes with an awful lot of other um, research that's been coming out, which says that there is a very tight correlation between poorly governed democracies and violence. These poorly governed democracies, we call them democracies mostly because we lack a better word. They fall in the middle of the varieties of democracy index, and they tend to be states where they have titular elections. You can uh, conceivably change power legitimately, but they um, also have a lot of oligarchic elements. They also have a lot of uh, elements of, of holding back the media or what have you that keep them from being real full democracies. And what we find is these poorly governed, unequal democracies lack two key variables that allow them to manage conflicts peacefully. They lack trust and they lack legitimacy. And the lack of these two variables means that when the government asks people to do something, for instance, deal with the coronavirus, uh, people don't tolerate it. They don't trust it as much. They don't trust one another as much because the government isn't keeping, uh, isn't sort of keeping the rules for everybody. And so there's a lot less interpersonal trust, a lot less trust in government, less trust in the media because there's a sense that the media is being manipulated. All those things together make for a very um, fragile and dynamic situation where opportunistic groups can step in. But here's the rub. Poor governance in most of these countries is not a bug. It's not an accidental problem that stems from weakness, which is how we've been treating it. It's actually a feature of these systems. In many countries, not all, there are actual weak states. Libya might be one of them, for instance, uh, parts of Somalia where the government just cannot control all its territory. Far more common are states like Nigeria, like Kenya, where the inability to control the territory is linked to the government using non-state actors for its own ends. And so what you tend to get 
is what I call in my book privilege violence. You tend to get um, parties, individual politicians or regimes that have chosen to use non-state actors to enrich themselves, uh, maybe to pay for their elections, um, maybe to help them quell certain kinds of dissent that would hurt them in, in election time. So uh, hurting opposition voters and helping force their voters to the polls. They, they use these militias for different things and they call them different names. They call them cartels, they call them militias, they call them gangs, what have you. But what ends up happening is that to protect those groups from justice, which is what they should have as criminal actors, they have to politicize their security services. Um, politicized security services tend to attract less good people. Um, they also tend to become more brutal for a whole lot of reasons. I only have eight minutes, so I won't get into it, but let's just uh, accept that when you politicize, you break the chain of command and you tend to uh, end up with a much more brutal security force, but that brutality does not fall on everyone equally. What it falls on most strongly are the most marginalized, the people with the least voice. And so in highly unequal societies, what you end up with is a state that's using non-state actors for its own purposes to stay in power and that's politicized security services so they don't deliver particularly good security. We know that violent security services are a major cause of, um, of radicalization and, and terrorism in certain countries and rebellion in other countries, depending on what the ideological preconceptions are. And so what you end up with is a marginalized group of people who can't turn to the state for help. Well, who do they turn to? They turn to themselves, so you end up with a lot of vigilante violence of people trying to take the law into their own hands. They also turn to their own non-state violent actors who offer some security. They might not like those actors. Drug gangs, militias, and so on might not be their uh, preferred source of security, but it might be their only source of security, or it might be that they make them an offer they can't refuse um, in terms of the, the state isn't going to protect them and so on. So what you end up with is um, more and more violent groups. Coronavirus is exacerbating this problem because these non-state violent actors are able to use the coronavirus to uh, deliver services that the state isn't delivering. They're trying to deliver information, healthcare, food, all sorts of things. The kind of Robin Hood complex is very strong amongst these non-state actors. And the result is that they gain more and more legitimacy and the state which is not delivering or which is delivering through brutality in a number of African countries, the state brutality is rivaling the coronavirus for um, levels of, of mortality. The state loses legitimacy, the non-state actors gain legitimacy. And, and so what does this mean? I'll just end here. What does this mean for um, interventions? Well, first it means that simply strengthening weak states is absolutely the wrong way to bring about security in these places. These states are weak by design. Um, some of them, you need indices like this to measure which ones are and which ones aren't, but a majority of these very violent states are weak by design. You're not going to be able to strengthen them. It's like pouring water into a broken cup. You pour security service help into these states and it gets siphoned off the other end. And so um, that's not the right way to deal with it. Moreover, what you're strengthening is actually a system that doubles down on this privileged violence that furthers the very violence that you're trying to deal with. And so uh, dealing with this particular problem requires working around the problem by strengthening the state society relationship. Now, if the state doesn't want to strengthen that relationship, there's only so much you can do on the state side. You have to work on the civil society side to help people demand a better state, not just a stronger state. Um, there are also things that we can do in terms of 
helping pockets of the state that might be working in terms of uh, helping the security services be less brutal. But again, they're only going to go so far because once they actually threaten the power of the regime, they'll all be knocked down again. And so it's really important to engage civil society in these kinds of states. It's important to engage subnational actors and local actors where you can find pockets that are not ensconced in privilege violence. That's my work right now is looking at how non-state actors can deal, or sorry, how um, subnational actors can deal with these problems. It's very important to protect the most vulnerable, the more marginalized communities, uh, the less least equal communities, women, children. Um, and it's very important to engage non-state actors in pandemic response to cut off oxygen, to cut off uh, air for these um, militias and so on to gain power. And I'll just end with, uh, I know England tends to be more concerned with problems in Africa than problems in Latin America. And so when I come with my American perspective and a bunch of Latin American examples, they, they fall on deaf ears. But I just heard yesterday, Cleonad um, from ACLID, giving a presentation. If you don't know ACLID, they're just fabulous uh, data organization that looks at political violence. And what she was saying is their data and their patterns now show that Nigeria and a number of countries in the Sahel are looking more and more like Latin America in terms of the organization of the militias and non-state actors. And so she's seeing a real convergence between what we see in Latin America in terms of non-state actors taking over a lot of responsibilities for the state and what we're starting to see in Africa. And so I do think that it's worth looking to El Salvador and Honduras for the future of what we might be seeing in some African states. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. That was so interesting. And I have a million questions that I want to ask you at the end. Do, as you're watching, feel free to keep popping questions in the Q&A. The, the, the less you put in, the more that I'll hog the floor when it's, I'm finally allowed to ask all my questions. So that seems like quite a nice segue into Delina's talk on the Sahel. Delina, are you okay to start? Hello, hi. Thank you very much for the invite, um, Alistair and Alistair, um, and uh, Abby and Liam and Megan, and the whole of the Oxford Research Group for organizing this, but also for drafting this really excellent report that I think is going to be useful for all of us. Um, I think I would like to say just a few words about why this report is useful in general, then why it's useful for the Sahel, and then thirdly, a couple of just wrong assumptions on regarding security in the Sahel especially. So I think the report is useful because it's comprehensive for the first time in that it includes climate, um, but I think is useful also because it represents a giant red flag uh, on lessons learned. So the fact that you've taken into consideration other war theatres and other crisis areas is extremely relevant. And I think there is something that is missing quite a lot in European policy circles. By European, I don't mean um, just the EU, I mean the European continent in general. So it seems to me um, that now that we're discussing the Sahel quite a lot, there are very few people who are experts within policy circles, especially, um, that are Iraq or Afghanistan experts. And so it's very difficult to have that knowledge stored and then used um, onto this very different, but also quite similar war theater that is the Sahel. Um, I think this index is useful for policymakers, but not just that, is useful for researchers and advocates as well. Um, because I think 
is good that these conversations supposedly from this index onwards uh, will not just occur in silos anymore but would also be able to create more debate within different circles of expertise. Um, I think it's relevant for the Sahel, uh, and this is my second point, because all three trends that you analyze are present in the region. The poor governance and marginalization trend uh, is very, very much present and is often overlooked. Um, I think it can be very easily exemplified by the fact that the Malian peace process, which was um, approved and signed uh, by all implementing partners in 2015, is not very much being followed through with. So there is, there is a lack of implementation there and a lack of proper guarantees. Um, and then secondly, a, a second example I would make is quite recent, uh, but the cases of corruption within the Nigerian Ministry of Defense are quite are an excellent and you know, terrible example of uh, lack of a proper um, governance, positive governance. I would say the, the second trend that you analyze, the over-reliance on military response, is also very much the case for the Sahel, um, both internally and externally. Internally, because huge budgets of Sahelian countries and also of, of their neighbors, actually, it's not just the Sahel, but, um, but countries neighboring the Sahel, um, are spending a large, large amount of their resources into military. And the second, from an external point of view, I mean, it's obvious that there are a very large amount of interventions at the moment taking place in the region. And we are quite quickly reaching a saturation point where reliance on the military is huge, but addressing other problems is not. Um, and your third trend, of course, I mean, uh, this, is, this is something that has been wi widely debated recently, uh, the problem of climate change, and not just recently, actually, um, is definitely a long-term trend, but is a trend nonetheless, and is something that, that we should watch for the side. Um, as for my third point, uh, the one on wrong assumptions, I would, just, I would just mention two, because the time is what it is, but I think, and I very much enjoyed Rachel's presentation right now. Um, I think there is a mismatch, and I'm talking of European policymakers especially, there is a huge mismatch between two different policy circles at the European level. One is the humanitarian and development circles, organizations and donors, and the other one is military and foreign policy. The first circle considers these states uh, to be weak, poorly governed, um, as Rachel says, poorly governed democracies, um, and does not necessarily trust the way they will implement um, the, the reforms that they promised or the projects that they promised. Within military circles, however, and foreign policy circles, the idea is that these states are unitary, democratic, trustworthy, and the example for this is what just happened in Po. Uh, in January, Macron gathered the heads of states uh, of the Sahel countries and had them reinforce why they need French support in the region. Now, to do this is to send a clear signal that these states are sovereign, that they are governing over their space, but this is not necessarily the case. And, and so there is this... The, well, yeah, this mismatch between what is believed uh, in, different, in different policy domains. The second 
wrong assumption, I would say, is that uh, we tend to talk about terrorism quite a lot and we tend to talk about religious fanaticism. And in the case of the Sahel, as it is with other cases, um, is not so much a problem of, ineffect of, of religious fanaticism, but rather a problem of ineffective service provision on the part of states, which are not able to provide the necessary services, be there security, but also other types of services to all the areas of their territory. So I'm not saying um, following Rachel's um, uh, explanation, I'm not saying that what we should do is strengthen the governance of these states. I'm, I'm just saying that I think it should be taken into consideration that the unitary block idea should not be there. So yeah, I think um, this is all. Thank you. That was, again, super interesting. It's nice to apply it to a, a regional focus to see how these different drivers of conflict that Alistair highlighted can all interplay at once. But in each case, they can interplay differently and it's important to understand the nuance of all of them. Um, Ollie, are you OK to go next? Good evening, everyone. Uh, so as Abby said, I'm Dr. Oliver Scanlon, Research Fellow at the Centre for Sustainable Development at the University of Liberal Arts, Bangladesh, and a Fellow at Oxford Research Group and I'm going to be talking about the environmental governance driver. Um, so the rationale, um, again, uh, might be different levels of, of knowledge uh, on the, on, among the audience. Uh, some people still find it quite strange to associate the environment with, with security issues. So the rationale in brief is that, for example, the UK's national security strategy has uh, three objectives. Objective one, protect our people. Objective three, promote our prosperity. Um, and I would suggest that this is probably a reasonable proxy for a general definition of national security objectives, at least putatively in most contexts. Uh, and the fact is that uh, risks emerging from current environmental problems kill large numbers of people and damage prosperity and will continue to do so in the near and intermediate term. So that's, uh, that's why environmental security. Environmental security in the index is captured uh, through a number of indicators international factors, uh, hydrocarbon exports and international climate finance contributions among them, uh, domestic factors, particularly biodiversity conservation, for example, derived from the Environmental Performance Index published by Yale University. And this represents a slight widening of the focus. Uh, ORG was, was quite focused on, on particularly climate change um, in around 2017, 2016. And I think this is, the index marks a very timely and appropriate uh, expansion uh, into more broader aspects of, of environmental security, as will become clear. Um, so we call the driver environmental governance. Um, I wanted, I was toying with the idea of human environmental governance, which I think is probably a bit too wordy, um, but it captures a, 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 an important part uh, of the issue. Um, and this is part of kind of ongoing work in attempting to better communicate the complexity and the interconnectedness of risks emerging from the environmental domain. So just as the Sustainable Security Index tries to uh, link uh, these very complex interactions between different drivers, so within the environmental governance uh, driver itself, we're looking at a number of very complex uh, interconnected issues. <clears throat> and this is a major public policy problem. Um, understanding how to effectively manage these risks emerging from changes in the natural world including understanding um, the relationships between both different environmental risks <clears throat> and between environmental risks and other problems stemming from non-environmental factors, like governance, for example. 
how environmental risks emerge from and relate to human systems, uh, which are fragile, interconnected, and interdependent, uh, and obviously including their likely impact on these systems, which remains one of the most hotly uh, debated uh, areas of the social sciences currently. Um, and crucially, how interventions in one risk area, this is the good news, have potential for, uh, uh, knock on benefits, ancillary benefits to other areas and how to quantify them. Uh, obviously, we picked a topical case study, uh, zoonotic emerging infectious diseases. Um, and one of the interesting things about COVID-19 is that you've, you've had two kind of popular ideas coming out in the, in the discourse, in the media and think pieces and so forth. And the first is this, this burning quest uh, how do we stop pandemics in the future? And the second is the view that climate change is an even larger problem than pandemics. And perhaps counterintuitively, uh, these formulations, I don't think these formulations are helpful uh, because it, it treats pandemic risk as a discrete problem. Um, go off and, and sort pandemics. Um, future zoonotic disease emergence and climate change are really closely interlinked in a number of, of, of key respects. Um, as can be seen uh, through this uh, table. Um, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's, uh, it's certainly most of the biggies uh, when it comes to zoonotic spillover events in the last 30 years. Um, and the key point I'd like to point out is that biodiversity loss, this is biodiversity, is covering a lot multitude of sins here. What we're talking about is complex land use changes um, that impact natural systems, particularly rainforests and so forth. Uh, so biodiversity loss is implicated in two, climate change directly into an industrial or intensified agriculture uh, in five. Uh, that's the historical record. SARS, we still don't know. Uh, COVID-19, it is possible we will never know. But one thing I'd like to emphasize is that it is absolutely true that China's economic development path uh, has been breakneck uh, by its own narrow uh, kind of metrics for success, successful. Uh, but ecologically ruinous, leading to substantial land use changes and enormous deforestation. And it's necessary to make necessary connections on that basis. Um, so public policy needs to grapple with the following connections between different problems um, and different risks based on the current evidence. And there you've got a load of bullet points um, that each individually is thoroughly vanilla. And, and, and reflecting kind of very uncontroversial, um, kind of the very uncontroversial and accepted verdict of science. Most of these are taken from um, the IPCC. Uh, biodiversity loss in itself is a security threat. Um, I mean, that's been a long-standing position, but uh, we've had a recent paper come out uh, from Stanford, uh, Chabalo and Ehrlich, uh, who, who refer to it as a kind of uh, biological annihilation, Ehrlich's. Uh, metaphor was that humanity is soaring the, uh, the, the branch on which humanity is sitting. Um, climate change, um, one thing I'd like to highlight, uh, leads to biodiversity loss, as well as biodiversity loss leading climate change. It's a feedback loop. So just a kind of couple of examples there. The Indonesian forest fires in 1997 uh, generated an amount of greenhouse gas emissions equivalent to at a minimum 13% and a maximum 40% of the annual global mean uh, greenhouse gas emissions up to that year. Uh, huge amount. And the Australian bushfires this year uh, kind of contributed essentially the same again. They doubled Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. 
Um, so essentially, it's, it's all of those complex factors and complex interlinkages that public policy really needs to grapple with um, in, in a sustained way. Um, so it's a big list of bullet points that can be simplified into this broad and extremely simple table. Uh, so on the left-hand column, you've got threats in their own right. Uh, climate change is a threat in its own right. Biodiversity loss, zoonotic spillover, pandemic, that's a threat in its own right. That's a threat that would come up on a government checklist, for example, for a debate. Um, and then you have causal mechanisms. So just to emphasize that every threat um, is, with the exception of zoonotic spillover, is in itself a causal mechanism, and that intensified in industrial agriculture, in general, the global food system is implicated in every single one of these, of these core, core threats that we, that we are facing. The good news, co-benefits. So the complexity of the interconnections between these different problems has a, has a positive aspect, and that's the fact that action in one area will have knock-on benefits in other areas. And this phenomenon has been most carefully analyzed uh, based on my reading in the climate change debate where it's termed co-benefits. So Ulrich Borsatz et al. 2014 highlighted how um, the ancillary benefits are so huge that in the case of many capital investment projects, climate change wasn't even a factor. So many investment projects that had very positive benefits in terms of climate change mitigation or adaptation, they weren't pursued for either. Uh, the the, the non-climate benefits are likely to be the primary reasons for pursuing interventions. And the key case study there is the Delhi subway system. Uh, the original rationale was just to reduce traffic congestion. That was the only rationale initially for the decision to create a subway system in Delhi. Um, but it has also improved air quality as well as reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So just to conclude, different risks emerging from changes in the natural world are interlinked uh, and complexly related to each other and, on, and other non-environmental risks in complex ways. And a better understanding of how these relationships work is vital for decision makers. Um, and it's a, it's a very kind of busy portion of, of, of academia working on these relationships. So neither a tunnel vision focus on stopping future pandemics, nor a false distinction between pandemic risk and climate change are likely to be helpful in this sense. Um, there needs to be a, a more holistic picture um, that will cross different government departments, cross different ministerial portfolios and require a different way of, of working. Uh, in the UK, I know many honest and hard efforts have been made in that direction, but I think there's there's probably still uh, a good way to go. And, and crucially, the benefits of interventions in one area will have positive knock-on effects in another. And it's crucial that this is analyzed and, and, uh, uh, and incorporated in a very granular level um, when we're talking, when decision makers are considering cost-benefit analyses of specific interventions and investment decisions. And that's me. Thank you very much. That was super interesting. Um, Shall we go to Liam to say one of the things that we explored in the in the report was this idea that not only do these interact in different ways in a country but in developing a sustainable security policy that's going to mean different things for different countries and the way that they develop their policy so one of the case studies that we had in the report was what would um, a global Britain look like based on these these if it if it took into account a sustainable security model and so we were very thankful that Liam said what will this mean for the UK <laughs> are you okay to take over Liam yeah of course well, I suppose uh first I wanted to sort of talk about global Britain in the sense that 
this has been discussed a lot over the last couple of years in the context of the UK's uh, impending departure from the, the European Union. And I think it's quite timely to discuss this in the context of the index, which, as my colleagues write, is, is all about challenging traditional concepts of security um, that improves the debate about uh, national and, and global priorities. So in my remarks, um, my remarks, uh, I want to discuss sort of four key areas um, in terms of how could a global Britain live up to a more sustainable approach to, to security. But these are the four key areas I want to talk about. And the first is what does global Britain mean? And there'll be many joining the call who don't understand this term. The second is global Britain in terms of interrogating that phrase. What does it mean practically? Uh, and then this, this discussion about the rhetoric versus reality in terms of how the UK government politician often sell certain ideas that don't necessarily follow through uh, in reality. And the final one is sort of a, a very salient issue in the UK at the moment in terms of uh, the, uh, although it's been delayed, is the um, 2020 integrated security review, which was supposed to take place this year, but doing, due to COVID has obviously yeah, been, been delayed. So what, is, what does global Britain mean? And when I pose that question, as I say, it's not, it's not just simply because there will be people here today who don't know what that term means, but also because lots of people have actually been asking, what does this mean? Uh, so as I say, this was a term that was coined following the 2016 uh, EU referendum and the result was that the UK was leaving, very much about kind of demonstrating that the UK wasn't about to become isolationist. Um, but it's largely become a rhetorical device by politicians, um, including by the, the former Prime Minister to, Theresa May. And I suppose rather unsurprisingly, uh, it's also said that the phrase was uh, originally uh, invented by Boris Johnson while he was at, at the Foreign Office, a sort of very Johnsonian way of selling an idea through catchy phrases and snappy slogans. But I think, you know, bearing down on the problem with this phrase is, is something that Tom Tugendhat, the, the chair of the influential Foreign Affairs Committee said is that the UK has come up with a slogan, but no meaning. Well, in February, we had a bit more clarity in terms of what three pillars of this approach to global Britain was going to be. And these were Britain as an ally in Europe, Britain as a champion of free trade, and Britain as a force for good in the world. And I want to explore mostly that final one there in terms of what that means to be a force for good in the world. And this comes to, I suppose, the most important point here about rhetoric versus reality. Um, the UK speaks a good game. We talk about this in the report. It, it recognises that the goal in conflict-affected context is to support the development of lasting peace and stability, which is built with the consent of the population. That's incredibly important. But is it happening in terms of the policies that are, are putting in place? And... I don't simply mean when it comes to rhetoric and reality about what it says uh, on, on the one hand or what it does in practice, but it, it, I think it's actually something more peculiar than that. And there's a particular example that I, I wanted to talk about today, and that's around um, a discussion that's been quite hotly had over the last couple of years around the protection of civilians. Now, the UK government has a strategy on the protection of civilians. It was created in 2010, and it's somewhat outdated at the moment. But it does make it one of the, the few countries that does have such a document. The UK is a pen holder on POC at the United Nations. And uh, last year, at the 20th anniversary of um, the, the first Protection of Civilians mandate at the Security Council, 
uh, a UK ambassador came to the General Assembly and very much talked up this notion that the UK should be protecting civilians in conflict and when those states don't talk about protecting civilians in, civilians in conflict that we should mark them out and say that they're doing something wrong. But when it came to discussions in the UK with many other NGO groups that, that we were having, um, often the, the response from officials would be, well, sort of very patronisingly, that NGOs don't understand conflict. Civilians die in conflict. We know that, but the government has also committed to have a progressive policy on protecting civilians in conflict. And therefore, we have to do more than simply accept that civilians die in conflict. And of course, this whole debate around what that approach looks like, going beyond military responses to conflicts, a sustainable approach, looking critically at the UK's past. We talk in the report about the phantoms of the UK policy in Iraq, in Libya. We have repeatedly identified lessons, but then we seem to forget them and don't actually put them in place. And that brings me to the last point, I suppose, about the integrated review. And it is an opportunity as much as it is a potential challenge, because this could go two or one ways. The idea of Britain being a force for good in the world could carry on and be a leading uh, consideration as part of this review. But something that we also noted in the report was that in many ways there are questions about the role of DFID. There are questions about the Britain being more active militarily on the international stage, suggesting that certain things, certain lessons are not being learned. So I think really what this document does is provide evidence of perhaps why being a force for good, what it means to be a force for good in the world. Um, and I think that very much speaks to all the different issues that have been raised in this report about making sure that the rhetoric around global Britain, the rhetoric around addressing security going beyond military responses are actually realised. Uh, because as Rachel was saying there, there's so much evidence to suggest that it's so much more complex than just deploying force to resolve a problem. And Alistair spoke to that point in his opening remarks as well. So I think this is a real opportunity to make sure that that integrated review reflects a new foreign policy that really lives up to the UK being a force within the world. Thank you, Liam. I don't know if you could see, but I was furiously nodding at everything you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to stop sharing? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think. I think as um, and please, if anyone cannot find the Q and A section, please do because people are are flooding in in now. And the, I'll just start with maybe Emily and Aditi's question together because I think it really speaks to the comments that you were just making, Liam, which were given this, given all this evidence that this isn't working. Why do states continue to use military focused solutions? Um, and then, as Aditi says, when, when we look at the way security concept is conceptualised and funded, defence against threats of armed groups are the first port of call. When we look at risk assessments done over the past decade in the UK, for example, pandemics were a tier one risk repeatedly. Despite this understanding, um, countless policies and strategies across UK governments enshrining long-term human security approaches none of this was meaningfully invested in. How do we overcome this gap between knowing that, that um, these issues are multifaceted and need an integrated approach 
and actually developing policies that do that. Who wants to jump in? I think I can I can talk intelligently to that. Uh, sorry, Rachel. <laughs> Rachel, do you want to go first? Absolutely not, please, Oliver. <laughs> Just, just in the UK context, um, uh, just as part of our climate security work, broadly speaking, there was an attempt to do this um, in terms of making government joined up. Uh, and indeed, part of the remit or part of the original vision for the National Security Council was to do long-term thinking and supervise uh, sustained cross-governmental work to overcome development, to overcome departmental silos, et cetera, and think in these, in these terms. Um, and unfortunately, the consensus is that it essentially did just descend into crisis management. And I think it happened roughly around Libya. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's there are, like I say, there have been many attempts to do this. Um, and, and it is just very, very difficult um, because, of, because of crisis management just sucking up political, political time. Currently, there is, there are, I think last time I spoke there, to people, there were two different views. One is the plumbing is basically sound in the UK context and needs to be sorted. And the other is actually we need new plumbing. And I think there is some kind of comparison, there's probably comparisons there with the United States context, um, where President Obama made a number of excellent moves in terms of requiring combatant commanders to report on climate change risks in their areas of responsibility and requiring the CIA to report uh, on, on climate change risks in the climate change context. Um, and that has sadly been reversed under the present administration. Um, so that's, that's yeah. Uh, I agree with everything Oliver has just said. I should, I should add that the funding for my research actually comes from DFID. And so I spend a good deal of time working with the US government and a good deal of time working with the UK government. Um, and I would say yours is, is functioning better than ours. I think no one in America is arguing that the plumbing works. Um, all of the questions around how you change the plumbing. But in addition to just the basic issues of, of um, functionality of intergovernmental work. I think there's three things I'd like to highlight. One is government is very large now, and I'm not trying to take a political position, but just to say that when the Marshall Plan was being created, we had 20 people who did the entire labor section of the Marshall Plan. 20 people can sit around a table and get things done. Um, now, the number of people doing any small silo of the work that we've just talked about is more than 20 people. And so simply getting the agreement, getting the clearance processes, it's just uh, technically challenging. Um, and in the age of email, there's just a lot more assumption of oversight. You know, if you think about how work was done back in Ben Franklin's day, an ambassador really had a lot of control over the country they were supposed to be controlling and things happened at the mission level because you couldn't communicate. Now you can communicate in real time and much is done at headquarters, much is done at the mission level. There's no particular reason that headquarters should privilege the mission level if they don't want to because of the communication needs. And so uh, the, the realities of our communication just make it much, much harder. Um, second of all, I think in the US context, maybe less in the UK, these things have fallen into our general political battleground. Um, there is no way to touch climate change without it falling into partisan um, discussions. That was under Obama as well as under uh, our current president. It's simply which side of the issue one is on. And, um, and so there isn't a consensus that this is a security threat. Uh, I used to run an organization that worked very hard on um, helping the military talk about climate change as a security threat and try to overcome that polarization and, and it's not easy. So I think that's the second issue in the US context. And I think the third issue in the US context is that um, even if there's a general acceptance of the theory, 
there's a need to implement it. And for that, we have our own political economy analysis to do within our own governments. It's quite easy to say, oh, let's look at the drivers of fragility in other countries. But we also need to look at some of the drivers within our own country that keep us from implementing and getting these out the out the door. And these are the really boring bureaucratic things. Do you have human resources who are trained in thinking this way about security? Do they have an index that's generally trusted? Maybe now they do. Do they have, is that data um, readily available in a nice chart that they can show members of parliament to justify what they're doing so they don't get in trouble with the Daily Mail? So, you know, you, you get into this kind of political issue within one's own country and one needs to think through that implementation too. Thanks both, both very intelligently answered questions. <laughs> Does anyone else want to jump in on, on that one? Otherwise I might go to Ben's question. Okay, cool. So Ben says, sustainable or human security needs to be the way, but where do we start with a sustainable security response in the most fragile and securitized environments where everything is a priority, but civil society capacity itself is weak and engaging with it may bring conflict sensitivity risks. So Lena, do you want to jump in on that one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that is the question, or one of the many questions, yeah. Um, the question of capacity of civil society, I think, is something that we're struggling with quite a lot. Uh, and within, within Open Society Foundations, which is an organization that I do independent work for, um, is extremely evident that the amount of civil society groups working on this is huge but the resources that they have is very limited and I think it was it was painfully visible within discussions around arm arm development uh, we worked on drones for quite a long time and it was obvious that it was a bunch of NGOs trying to push for change and try to set an agenda um, and the the threats or rather <laughs> the challenges that they were facing were with Arm, arms industry, which were way better resource, resource than them. And so I think, I think something to call for and something that would be extremely useful whenever discuss, discussing security would be getting civil society in the room and on how to mitigate for the threats that that represents. There have been countless cases in, in the Sahel, especially on uh, getting civil society in the room, but then um, then they would face a threat once they go back into their village for having participated into government-led uh, or internationally-led discussions. Um, so I think this is something that we should work on way more as governments, I think. Thank you, completely agree. Oli, did you want to jump in? Sorry, not, not especially. Um, I can do. You have to stop fiddling your pen. I think your hands up. <laughs> Sorry, well. <laughs> Can I add something? If there's oh, no questions, or oh, yes, there are. <laughs> you you can add add something quickly though. We okay, no, I just wanted to ask. Um, perhaps because Rachel talked about the fact that strengthening weak states is not the best idea because it seems to have very limited results. Then, what would be a good idea? I mean, what is a solution to this conundrum? <laughs> So, That's sorry, a million actually, dollar question. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, Rachel, but I can just add, so I've just had a thought that I can add that directly speaks to Delina's question to you that might be helpful. Is that all right? Um, 
which which is the development development interventions and, and, and the development international development apparatus privileges national partnership under the rubric of aid effectiveness after the Busan declaration and actually kind of there's a there's a, there is this contradiction between working closely with national governments governments and supporting civil society that is at the same time trying to hold government accountable and that actually development flows flows of development funding are often quite heavily policed by the internal bureaucracies of respective governments so that's an increasing tension in in i think particularly racial when you were talking about those middle strong states i think that's a major major obstacle I think that's a huge point. And Delina, to, to get further into your question, if you look historically at how um, states have developed, you, ha you have this very fine line. Basically, if you have a group of, and here I'm drawing on Charles Tilley and a whole bunch of historians of state development, but if you have a state that becomes strong and then becomes democratic, and you can moderate those two things with a big enough group of people who force the state to respect their rights, which are usually some form of elite or aristocracy that can do that. Then you get this beautiful middle ground that countries like Japan, France, Germany, uh, and so on have hit where they are, are strong, capable states and they're democratic states. And if you go too far on either side of that, if you develop too strong a state and too weak a democracy, then you have your sort of authoritarian problems that you're getting in say Nicaragua, um, a lot of countries that had more slave labor type, type uh, situations and oligarchic uh, economics tend toward that form of government, too strong a state, too weak rights. The other way can also be a problem. So the United States as, long, as well as a number of developing countries developed democracy before we had a strong state. And when you have democracy before a strong state that there's a huge push for patronage and corruption and a lack of a strong civil service. And what you get is what you're seeing in our healthcare system right now, our public health system, um, which is just a total mess. And we share that with a lot of developing country democracies that democratized before a strong state. So what you're looking for is that middle ground. And so what do you do in a weak state? First, you have to sort of see which way is it weak? Is it weak because it's too authoritarian and has too little rights, too little civil society? Or is it weak because the state itself, the state capacity is weak and it actually, you do actually need to strengthen the state. Based on that initial analysis or understanding, you can see whether your job is to build up more civil society and a stronger group. I mean, civil society can be good and bad. I don't wanna treat it all as good. Uh, ISIS is a form of civil society, of course. Uh, let's build up the good side so that it can pressure the government for more rights and have more uh, of an internal push on that side so that your state society relationship is in balance. That can be helpful. If the problem is too weak a state, then you do have to build up the state, but then you can build it up as Oliver said, which is in the best US states, how they developed, you get stronger subnational governance. But also people tend to be more able to um, hold their local government accountable and more closely tied to their local government. You can just see what's going on better. So it makes sense to start working with the local level instead of just going straight to the national. And as Oliver was saying, donors are just not set up to do that. They're not very acute at doing that analysis. I mean, even basic things like which political party is in government at this level versus that level, and might the national level have an incentive to harm the local level uh, for resources or what have you, if they're on the, you know, just really basic ways of thinking about these things. So I think you, you have to do some political economy analysis, not in a sort of rarefied way, but in a very just 
common sense way to try to figure out what the problem is and then balance that relationship. Because ultimately, outsiders will never matter as much as the inside groups within these countries. You know, politicians respond to their people, even highly aid-dependent countries um, who might respond a little more to donors. They care most about their own sources of power internally. And so figuring out ways to balance those. And, and sometimes that balancing looks pretty ugly. I mean, sometimes there is work that needs to be done with the elites to, to balance things out. That's historically what happened in a lot of Europe. Thank you, super interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll slightly change tack now and go to Fergal's question, which is structural drivers of conflict are notoriously tricky to trace and capture in an audited type of way, given that they're often hidden within the political economic and cultural norms. How did you untangle that in terms of the index and how did you weight such dimensions for the index? Alistair, do you want to take that one? Um, no, it's, it's a very fiendish question, actually. Um, I think sort of with an index like that, I mean, that's really going into the idea of structure agency debate, which I mean, is not really something we can go into too much here. I think sort of it's a fair point to um, weigh in about the idea of what an index is, which is in, in its essence, an index is sort of a structuralist argument. And the problem with sort of structuralist arguments is that when you have certain structures in some conditions and they produce this result like conflict, and then you have the same structures in a kind of identical one, um, you know, it doesn't produce the same result. And you can see that with certain societies were quite similar, but they didn't sort of um, spill over into conflict. I think the probably response I'd go is that really the purpose of the index is really to suggest that these kind of conditions make things far more likely. But I think that you would have to really kind of combine things with far more qualitative work um, to kind of get to those kind of more agency driven questions about sort of, you know, why do certain societies go this way in terms of conflict? Um, another thing, though, I think it leads on to, though, is that particularly when we're looking at pandemics and this kind of agent structure thing, there are sort of questions to be raised about how far you can go with an index in terms of, you know, analyzing whether a state is going to respond. And I think one of the things about the US, well, that kind of was an interesting discussion as well, is the role of certain political personalities. Would it have been um, a, similar, um, a similar response if someone like Obama was in charge, particularly um, in places like Brazil, would we have yielded the kind of similar sort of results? Um, and certainly in Port, as a recent briefing, he actually raised the point that really when we have sort of quite hard right populist kind of leaders in certain states, although debate about whether I think Boris is not necessarily hard right in that sense, but certainly when you have those kind of personalities, it does real questions about how far you can go with structures. So, I mean, in summation, my sort of response to focal would be sort of, I think maybe don't look just at the index, look at the sort of a more qualitative dynamic of that and sort of, you know, combine it with those, you know, things like field research and things like that. I, I think that's for a very theme, an excellent answer for a very good question. And I think it's so right just to just to echo what Alistair was saying that this index is meant to be the start of a conversation that that we that we hope it will provide the basis as much for people saying, no, you actually measured security completely wrongly. This is how you should measure it. That's almost the response we want because it starts a conversation about how we should systematically measure security across contexts. And also certain things just aren't measurable by certain instruments and that's not bad. Um, just feeding on from like kind of Rachel's observations about 
that subnational units, for example, the, the, the example of Kerala in India in terms of COVID response is astonishing and, and world beating and, and both in comparison to the rest of India, but also kind of compared with the UK and a lot of developed countries. Um, so exactly certain ideas when it comes to individual personal decision making of decision makers at crisis uh, are simply not gaugeable by, by an instrument like the index. And that's not, that's, that's not wrong or it's not, it's not bad. That's okay. <laughs> it's a little addendum to that also. I think the, the idea of what we could describe as historical memory or these kind of things also factor. I mean, basically lessons learned from that. I mean, people have talked about the response to places like South Korea. And I think it's largely, you know, people have opined that it's really down to experience of SARS. And as horrific as some of these things are, sometimes you really don't know how to react to this until you actually are, are greeted with these kind of crises. And I think, you know, this is another thing that's very difficult to factor into um, an index is this idea of, how sort of you know historical memory is kind of embedded into sort of policies and you know how we actually learn lessons from these um these sort of things like conflicts or indeed pandemics but you know there's always the attempt to try maybe the next index will do this <laughs> um maybe i might bundle these two questions together so um the first one from caroline kennedy pipe is um to rachel how does your con concept of privilege violence endure and how can it be prohibited broken down and then there's also another one that sort of links this to the the black lives matter movement and i'm i mean it seems that the movement in itself is a demonstration how we have to look to the individual when we conceptualize security because a society can only be as secure as their most endangered group I wonder how these two things interlink and whether you have anything to say to both of those, Rachel. Um, I'll, I'll do my best. Those are big questions. Um, so in my book, A Savage Order, I talk about the sort of trajectory of, of a savage order. The, the most likely trajectory of privilege violence is for it to esconce in what I call a savage order, which is basically... These are societies that are not fragile. They are highly violent um, without being fragile because they're very ordered. Everybody um, understands the basic rules of the game. And if you don't uh, push them too far, you actually get an ordered society. And here, um, I think you could look to a country like Kenya, uh, like Brazil, where you get uh, very significant levels of violence from the state and from parts of society but these are not societies that are at risk of collapsing um, the types of violence and the ways it's structured enable these societies to exist without being unduly fragile. And I think that's a problem that we haven't really dealt with when they change, they change through social movements. And so here's how black lives matter comes in. My book was actually about countries that changed that got out of this savage order. And I was very interested in how that happened. And I looked at the subnational level at places at the city level, um, places like Sicily, uh, the state level, Bihar, India, um, country level, uh, at Colombia, for instance, and then at the regional level, which was the southern United States at, during Jim Crow and um, post our civil war uh, and a number of other cases. But um, you basically saw a very similar pattern to getting out of it. What you saw was um, first the violence started affecting the middle class. And I think this is very important that it's it's very easy to say that the marginalized should rise up. But the problem is when the marginalized rise up in a lot of these highly unequal societies, it makes the middle class scared. And what they do is they double down on the, the 
privilege violence that's happening. They double down on state violence. And so when the violence starts affecting the middle class, then they have a choice. Do they double down on state violence? Do they say, oh my gosh, they're militias, they're gangs, our kids are being hurt. What we really need to do is mano dura or um, enable more shoot to kill policies or so on. Or do they say, wait, something is fundamentally wrong with our state. Helping them make that decision tends to be social movements. And if you can get a strong, broad, nonviolent social movement, and here I'm drawing on Erica Chenoweth's work and Maria Stefan, um, if you can get a movement like that, it can convince the middle class to, um, to actually change the social order rather than double down on it. And here I think BLM has played two roles. I think a couple of years ago after Ferguson and so on, BLM basically scared the white middle class in America. I'm not blaming them for it, but I think that the ways in which they were structured, the ways in which um, the, the rhetoric was in just the moment of time meant that they did not create a broad-based movement. And some of this I will blame on them, that they didn't want a broad-based movement. There was actually a lot of rhetoric within BLM that they didn't want people from other races necessarily as part of that movement. Um, now you're seeing something very different. And I think you can see it with, say, Colin Kaepernick's um, rhetoric and how in the past he was isolated and now the people who speak against him are isolated. Now what you're seeing is a much broader recognition of this problem and a much broader embrace of a bigger movement. Um, the problem is, is that it's not exactly nonviolent. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily BLM. I think there's some pretty good reasons to believe that it's other parts of society that are serving as agents provocateurs. But nevertheless, uh, violence makes these very hard, as Erica and Maria have found. Anyway, the path out is basically that if you can get a, a social movement that can mobilize the middle class to say what we need to do is alter society, which you are seeing some of with BLM. We've got a whole bunch of legislation at the national level being introduced against police brutality in the United States, although most police issues are at the city level. So um, there's, a pro there's a mismatch with where you can make change and how. If you can get that broad social movement, then there's a chance for the state to reform. What I also found, though, was that you have to give the state some room to reform in ways that look pretty ugly. So I have a chapter that was very controversial called Dirty Deals. And what this is, is basically um, elites and elite bargains, you need to give people a way out of them. Um, and giving them a way out and giving them a stake in the new system can look pretty unfair. So in this context of the United States and Black Lives Matter, maybe it means you don't do reparations and you actually do help uh, underprivileged whites who really feel that they're losing a lot in comparison to other minority groups. That's a pretty ugly deal when you look at the past history of the United States, but it might be what's necessary to get them on board to deal with the security sector problems that we have in the United States. So you're making ugly deals like that. You can see this in Diffid's work on elite bargains and, and um, that, that talks about these kinds of deals. If you can get past that deal, then the state has to actually deliver. The state has to become more equal and more inclusive. Um, it can't stick with the dirty deal. If it can do all that, then you actually can beat this privilege violence cycle. And so I do think that there's hope for the United States. I think there's hope for a lot of these countries, but it's not an easy path. I call it kind of a snakes and ladders. There's a lot of ways to fall down as well as to go up. Thank you, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and maybe in terms of the, the future, I'm gonna give Delina this very difficult question, which is where do you see the future of the Sahel region over the next 10 years? And is there a risk of a 
rotation of extremism? I think uh, exploitation. Exploitation, maybe. Just saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think. I think unless we choose to address as. Um, I would say as Western states, unless we choose to use foreign policy instruments that are not necessarily coercive, but that are um, nonetheless, um, that, that consider compliance, I think we're going to, to have a very negative effect and we're going to repeat what we did in Afghanistan and Iraq. So I think, I mean, on the exploitation of terrorism, I think this is, um, this is a, very, I mean, it's impossible to make an analysis like this, I think. Uh, and I think it's been quite bloated, this idea that terrorism in the Sahel comes from the outside um, and that it will be exported necessarily into Western states. I think I find this rhetoric a bit problematic. Um, but I think in terms of the what the Western intervention should be, and especially on the European Union side, the European Union tends to be quite shy on how to react to foreign policy of this sort. And the way that they do it whenever they are strong handed is by blocking migration, which is definitely something you don't want to do. Um, so I think something that the EU could do would be to pressurize the elites, but also the governments of Sahelian countries and their neighbors to provide for better security sector reforms. And this would be a positive way out by involving, of course, the civil society that was discussed earlier, a civil society that is credible. And so, of course, that that is also um, an assessment that needs to be made beforehand. Thank you very much. I've also, um, I've now launched the results of the poll, um, which asked two questions. Are, should the definition of security be broadened? And if so, has the index captured all the things that should be covered? So it's probably no surprise that 93% of the people attending this event thought that the, the definition of security should be widened. But I think it is quite interesting that 30% thought that the index didn't cover all the issues that should be covered in an index that covers sustainable security. So I guess I have a, a more broader question for all the panelists around what, what they think should be captured in a definition of security. Who would like to go first? Just, I'm just going to reiterate the point from before, a healthy, the consideration of a healthy civil society, which I don't know whether it's encapsulated in any way within your index. It only, only in terms of the, the governance and, and equality measure, the, the participate, like civil, civil participation is covered. But I, yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, and it's certainly one of the, the things that that we've considered in trying to understand the what a positive foreign policy would look like because if you look at the governance and equality mechanism it looks at how well you govern and treat equally the people within your own society but what it doesn't do is is say by what means are you intervening in abroad and who are you speaking to and how what how well are you speaking to all the layers of government? So it certainly doesn't 
doesn't measure whether when the US or the UK engage abroad, they consider the civil society perceptions. So yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Is there, would anyone else like to weigh in on that? I mean, it'd be interesting to hear from you, Liam, around what, how, how you expect security to be defined in the integrated review and whether there's anything else that it needs to consider. Well, I mean, I think it's a very good question, but I think that it comes with a disappointing response, which is that I think there is, given the political makeup, and this is going to be a, probably a very political uh, review, given that it's it's sort of attached to the UK's future outside of the European Union, you have a, a Conservative Party, which uh, post-December 2019 is much more hawkish. Uh, and I think that has implications for how uh, security is perceived because I think there is a tendency to see the the use of um, development aid with all of its its problems in terms of how that that works at the moment, but as as a weakness that you know prioritizing development is a weakness, but actually you know investing in defence is strength, and I think I think that really is a is a really important narrative that we need to challenge when it comes to security, and that's the same for I think for for diplomacy. As well, you know, if you look at the way the Foreign Office has been defunded continuously over the last sort of 10, 20 years, um, uh, you are setting yourself up for um, already a weaker response to, to some of these conflicts. I was reading the other day that Robert Gates, uh, former Defence Secretary of the US, has come out saying that actually the US needs to invest much more in diplomacy rather than applying military responses. I think what's interesting is that there seems to be a lot of uh, agreement and consensus around this uh, limited approach to security, but we're not sort of going f f far enough in terms of actually providing an, an adequate, adequate response. And I think that's you know, reflected in the remarks that, that I made earlier, that the government often, I mean, different people say different things, right? So you have one minister saying something which is very positive around the need for a more sustainable approach to security, and then you have someone in the MAD saying something very different potentially. And I think that, that's a problem, but you know, there, there are people there who do accept uh, this, this notion of a more sustainable approach. So I think you just need to get that much more on the political agenda, that this idea that maybe a different um, uh, kind of perception of where you spend money isn't necessarily a weakness, but it not only helps UK national security, but it also is a much more sustainable approach uh, to national security going forward. So, yeah, but a difficult, difficult topic to sort of embed that, I think, in the current, given the current political discourse. Yeah, it's really interesting, if not a bit disheartening. <laughs> um, I think what I'll do then is I'll ask the last question and then I might go across the panel to see if there's any final remarks that the panelists want to make just before I finish for the day. So the, the last question that we've got on the Q&A is, what risks may there be in expanding the definition of security, of securitizing all social, economic and ecological issues? Does the history of the security development nexus not suggest that the logic of national security will always trump wider concerns when the term is used? Um, and then they've added, is the former head of the UK's Office for Security and Counterterrorism the best person to lead the UK's new biosecurity centre? So feel free to, if maybe if we go across the panel in the order that we started, and then feel free to touch on that question or just add any additional comments that you have. And also feel free to just say that you don't have anything to say. Uh, so Alistair, do you want to start? I think more towards the sort of... Um 
linguistic side of it. I mean, basically, when you use securitized language, I think you need to be very, very cautious about how you're using it in this context, particularly, for example, when you use securitization around things like poverty or things like refugees, because it does have ramifications when you start long-term seeing these people as security threats. Um, That's not, you know, it doesn't always lead that way, but it does become problematic. And particularly when we have things like, um, so this concept, Paul was talking about this idea of marginalization and how it kind of basically eventually feeds into this kind of thing. I think there is a very dangerous way that if we start sort of defining security too much and saying, well, these kind of people are security threats, um, we could see things go the wrong way rather than creating a sort of a human security discourse. It's, you know, everything is seen as a security threat. Uh, I mean, on the on the sort of the idea about um, biosecurity, I don't really know enough about that to sort of, to sort of comment on that. But I think I think there is, you know, the, the key point really is to always be slightly cautious about how and be careful about how language is used in this regard because it does have you know, consequences. Yeah, thank you. That's a useful comment. Um, Rachel, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Alistair about the consequences of the language, and I also think that you risk uh, just making people not believe you if you broaden it too far. Um, the The reality is that when everything is security threat, nothing is. And so you sort of lose the, the focus of it. On the other hand, if very few things are a security threat and you can elevate something to that level, what it basically does, at least in the Anglo-American context, is get it attention and priority um, and often money. And so you're balancing those, those needs. And I think one just has to be quite careful. And rarely do I think it makes sense to elevate an entire field. Um, I think it makes more sense to elevate particular issues. So for instance, rather than saying climate change as a whole is a security threat, and I think Oliver's gonna jump down my neck for saying this, so feel free to call on Oliver next. You know, you might wanna single out a portion of it that is clearly and unequivocally a security threat. You know, the burning of the forests in Indonesia is doing X or, you know, he's the expert, not me. Um, and, and then focus the attention and money on that in a way that, um, that can then help you broaden the issue without, overly, without, bringing, without making it a military issue. It's not the military's job to deal with that problem. And so you just have to think a little strategically about how to use the language. Thanks. Delina, do you want to go next and then Ollie can think of a rebuttal for Rachel? <laughs> yeah, there is, I mean, I wouldn't add anything to what uh, Alistair and, uh, and Rachel just said. I, I fully agree. Um, on the civil society point, I just didn't add anything before. But the thing that that I believe is that it has, so the discussion around having a consideration on a strong civil society network, strong civil society governance is not so much for UK, US intervention, Western intervention in general, but for the states that we're considering. And it would have to be civil society that is not a client of either the government or the opposition, but an independent civil society. That I think is a good measure of a good, a strong democracy. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Ali, do you want to jump in with your final remarks? I, I do, and uh, and I I certainly won't be rebutting Rachel. Uh, I think she made uh, she made a very good point about the the constraints you, you operate under um, in trying to leverage uh, resources in a bureaucracy. The one question I would ask is that the the problem when you say a whole field is a security threat that that loses potency 
But one interesting thing is that essentially, if you look at nation state threats uh, or, or the threat of emerging from national actors and then later on sub-state actors, that's exactly what the United States did. Did it in 1945 and said, the whole world, we are going to project power, we are going to be able to do that. Um, and they have continued to do that, the United States continued to do that, um, and has, has continued to pursue full-spectrum full dominance um, as they define it. Um, so, so it has been done, which is not to disagree with Rachel, but it's extremely, you know, almost, you know, beyond imagination that they would, that the United States or the UK would, would, would shift overnight in their thinking because of the sheer power of bureaucracies involved. What I would say, though, is that um, in terms of language and, and, and securitization, I agree with all the points that have been made. But I think the, the, the point about security in, in the environmental security context is, is partly discursive. And it's to say that the urgency and the resource expenditure on these problems should match or even exceed the, the resources and urgency that is allocated to what have been termed conventional security threats. Um, I think that is valid. And I think that the current situation we're in um, is actually the beginning of a, of a new period of volatility. Um, and um, I, there will, to my view, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but there will not be a new normal. There will be no new equilibrium uh, that we will reach. Um, because in, in a sense, from 2008, one example, we're still at rock bottom interest rates and quantitative easing. So quantitative easing notionally was supposed to be this emergency measure that will, would be ended when quote unquote, things got back to normal, but we're still there. Um, whatever happens, it seems likely most countries are gonna have to live with far higher debt to GDP ratios in the immediate aftermath of COVID. And, and I just think that we are in a period of, of unprecedented volatility, the only new normal will be continuing and certainly continuing volatility. And I think this will, unfortunately, Alistair's point about learned behaviors, I think that this will have to do the job uh, of, of raising the urgency of these issues and the resource allocation of these issues to the level currently accorded to global military uh, expenditures and the pursuit of full spectrum dominance. Thank you. I think we have to quickly come to an end, but Liam, do you have anything else you want to add before I just say? Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say, I think there's a, there's a tendency in this country, sort of, because of perhaps our, our history and uh, the, the memories of 1940, to sort of very much uh, describe uh, crises like this in sort of very military terms, since, you know, describe it as a fight, a battle, a war against a virus. But I think there is a tendency, if you do that, to actually uh, when it comes to thinking in the future, how do you respond to these crises? What's the best approach? Well, it's probably investing in a more resilient healthcare system um, that can respond to uh, something like this. And are we doing that enough? And then if, therefore, if you're characterizing it as a battle, maybe that's not the most effective way. And then on the, on the specific point about, um, I think it's Claire Gardner who referenced in the, in the question who uh, was formerly at the National Cyber Security Center has now gone to this biosecurity center. As far as I understand, her appointment seems to be based on uh, very much sort of a crisis management in terms of working with the NHS test and trace system to identify potential um, outbreaks of, of the virus coming up. So I think in terms of whether that appointment makes sense, maybe it makes sense at this point 
in time because the obviously the, the priority for the government is to make sure they can trace where the virus is spreading and obviously isolate it and prevent its spread so maybe that that appointment makes sense but maybe going forward someone who's a bit more uh, expert when it comes to the spread of disease and, and, and the viruses etc might be a more appropriate uh, appointment but as i say i'm not i'm not an expert on that but i can see the logic of why that particular individual has been uh, appointed at this time Yeah, I think that's a great point. And we constantly hear the language of, of conflict being applied to COVID. Another great point. Thank you so much, everyone. I thought that was excellent. I had a great time. Um, and so thank you for everyone who came, who listened, who participated. There'll be um, uh, an NEL form that goes round after we end this call. But that doesn't, that's not all the feedback we want to get from you when you do get time to read the index. Please do come with your concerns, criticisms, comments, please do email me and Ollie and Alistair about any of the things that you liked and didn't like about the report. And we just want to start the debate on what this should all mean. Um, so I'll say goodbye then. And um, I hope everyone stays safe in the meantime. Okay, bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank, Thank you. you.